Section 7 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Walters. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 2 of the Chemical Knowledge Possessed by the Ancients, Part 2. Some of the bronze statues cast by the ancients were of enormous dimensions and show decisively the great progress which had been made by them in the art of working and casting metals. The addition of the lead and tin would not only add greatly to the hardness of the alloy, but would at the same time render it more easily fusible. The bronze statue of Apollo, placed in the capital at the time of Pliny, was 45 feet high and cost 500 talents, equivalent to about 50,000 pounds of our money. It was brought from Apollonia in Pontus by Lucullus. The famous statue of the sun at Rhodes was the work of Chares, a disciple of Lysippus. It was 90 feet high, was 12 years in making, and cost 300 talents, about 30,000 pounds. It was made out of the engines of war left by Demetrius when he raised the siege of Rhodes. After standing 56 years, it was overthrown by an earthquake. It lay on the ground 900 years and was sold by Movia, king of the Saracens, to a merchant who loaded 900 camels with the fragments of it. Copper was introduced into medicine at rather an early period of society, and various medicinal preparations of it are described by Dioscorides and Pliny. It remains for us to notice the most remarkable of these. Pliny mentions an institution to which he gives the name of Saplasia, the object of which was to prepare medicines for the use of medical men. It seems, therefore, to have been similar to our apothecary shops of the present day. Pliny reprobates the conduct of persons who had the charge of these supplasiae at this time. They were in the habit of adulterating medicines to such a degree that nothing good or genuine could be procured from them. Both the oxides of copper were known to the ancients, though they were not very accurately distinguished from each other. They were known by the names flos eris and scoria eris, or squama eris. They were obtained by heating bars of copper red-hot and letting them cool, exposed to the air. What fell off during the cooling was the floss. What was driven off by blows of a hammer was the squama or scoria iris. It is obvious that all of these substances were nearly of the same nature, and they were in reality mixtures of the black and red oxides of copper. Stomoma seems to have also been an oxide of copper, which was gradually formed upon the surface of the metal when it was kept in a state of fusion. These oxides of copper were used as external applications in cases of polypi of the nose, diseases of the anus, ear, and mouth, etc., seemingly as escherotics. Irugo, verdigris, was a subacetate of copper, doubtless often mixed with subacetate of zinc, as not only copper but brass also was used for preparing it. The mode of preparing the substance was similar to the process still followed. Whether verdigris was employed as a paint by the ancients does not appear, for Pliny takes no notice of any such use of it. Chalcantum, also called atramentum suturium, was probably a mixture of sulfate of copper and sulfate of iron. Pliny's account of the mode of procuring it is too imperfect to enable us to form precise ideas concerning it, but it was crystallized in strings, which were extended for the purpose in the solution. Its color was blue, and it was transparent like glass. This description might apply to sulfate of copper, but as the substance was used for blackening leather, and on that account was called astramentum suturium, it is obvious that it must have contained also sulfate of iron. Chalcitis was the name for an ore of copper. The account given of it by Pliny agrees best with copper pyrites, which is now known to be a sulfur salt, 
composed of one atom of sulphide of copper, the acid, united to one atom of sulphide of iron, the base. Pliny informs us that it is a mixture of copper, mysie, and sori. Its color is that of honey. By age, he says, it changes into sori. I think it most probable that native sori, of which Pliny speaks, was sulfurate of copper and artificial sori sulfate of copper. The native sori is said to constitute black veins in chalcitis. Pliny's description of mysie best agrees with copper pyrites. Dioscorides describes it as hard, as having the color of gold, and as shining like a star. All of this agrees pretty well with copper pyrites. Scolica, so-called because it assumed the shape of a worm, was formed by triturating alumen, carbonate of soda, and white vinegar, till the matter became green. It was probably a mixture of sulfate of soda, acetate of soda, acetate of alumina, and acetate of copper, probably with more or less oxide of copper, etc., depending upon the proportions of the respective constituents employed. Such are the preparations of copper employed by the ancients. They were only used as external applications, partly as escharotics, and partly to induce ulcers to put on a healthy appearance. It does not appear that copper was ever used by the ancients as an internal remedy. 4. Though zinc in the metallic state was unknown to the ancients, yet, as they knew some of its ores and employed preparations of it in medicine, and were in the habit of alloying copper with it, and converting it into brass, it will be proper to state here what was known to them concerning it. Pliny nowhere makes us acquainted with the process by which copper was converted into brass, nor does he seem to have been acquainted with it. But, from several facts incidentally mentioned by him, it is obvious that their process was similar to that which is followed at present by modern brass makers. The copper in grains is mixed with a certain quantity of calamine, cadmia, and charcoal, and exposed for some time to a moderate heat in a covered crucible. The calamine is reduced to the metallic state and imbibed by the copper grains. When the copper is thus converted into brass, the temperature is raised sufficiently high to melt the whole. It is then poured out and cast into a slab or ingot. The cadmia employed by ancients in medicine was not calamine, but oxide of zinc, which sublimed during the fusion of brass in an open vessel. It was distinguished by a variety of names, according to the state in which it was obtained. The lighter portion was called capnitis. Botryitis was the name of the portion in the interior of the chimney. Its name was derived by some resemblance which it was supposed to have to a bunch of grapes. It had two colors, ash and red. The red variety was reckoned best. This red color it might derive from some copper mixed with it, but more probably from iron, for a small quantity of oxide of iron is sufficient to give oxide of zinc a rather beautiful red color. The portion collected on the sides of the furnace was called plachitis. It constituted a crust and was distinguished by different names according to its color. Onychitis, when it was blue externally but spotted internally. Ostrichitis, when it was black and dirty looking. This last variety was considered an excellent application to wounds. The best cadmia in Pliny's time was furnished by the furnaces of the Isle of Cyprus. It was used as an external application in ulcers, inflammations, eruptions, etc., so that its use in medicine was pretty much the same as at present. Sulfate and acetate of zinc were unknown to the ancients. No attempt seems to have been made by them to introduce any preparations of zinc as internal medicines. Pompolix was a name given to oxide of zinc, sublimed by the combustion of the zinc which exists in brass. Spodos seems to have been a mixture of oxides of zinc and copper. There were different varieties of it, distinguished by various names. 
5. Iron exists very rarely in the earth in a metallic state, but most commonly in the state of an oxide, and the processes necessary to extract metallic iron from these ores are much more complicated and require much greater skill than the reduction of gold, silver, or copper from their respective ores. This would lead us to expect that iron would have been much longer in being discovered than the three metals whose names have just been given. But we learn from the book of Genesis that iron, like copper and gold, was known before the flood. Tubal-Cain being represented as an artificer in copper and iron. The Hebrew word for iron, berazel, is said to be derived from ber, bright, nezel, to melt, and would lead one to the suspicion that it referred to cast iron rather than malleable iron. It is possible that in these early times, native iron may have existed, as well as native gold, silver, and copper. And in this way, Tubal-Cain may have become acquainted with the existence and properties of this metal. In the time of Moses, who was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, iron must have been in common use in Egypt, for he mentions furnaces for working iron, ores from which it was extracted, and tells us that swords, knives, axes, and tools for cutting stones were then made of that metal. Now iron in its pure metallic state is too soft to be applied to these uses. It is obvious, therefore, that in Moses' time, not only iron, but steel also must have been in common use in Egypt. From this, we see how much further advanced the Egyptians were than the Greeks in the knowledge of the manufacture of this most important metal. For during the Trojan War, which was several centuries after the time of Moses, Homer represents his heroes as armed with swords of copper, hardened by tin, and never using any weapons of iron whatever. Nay, in such estimation was it held that Achilles, when he celebrated games in honor of Patroclus, proposes a ball of iron as one of his most valuable prizes. Then hurled the hero, thundering on the ground, a mass of iron, an enormous round, whose weight and size the circling Greeks admire, rude from the furnace and but shaped by fire. This mighty quite Asian want to rear, and from his whirling arm dismissed in air, the giant by Achilles slain, he stowed among his spoils this memorable load. For this he bids those nervous artists vie that teach the disc to sound along the sky. Let him whose might can hurl this bowl arise, who farthest hurls it, takes it as his prize. If he be one enriched with large domain of downs for flocks and arable for grain, small stock of iron needs that man provide. His hinds and swains whole years will be supplied from hence. Nor ask neighboring cities aid for plowshares, wheels, and all the rural trade. The mass of iron was large enough to supply a shepherd or plowman with iron for five years. This circumstance is sufficient proof of the high estimation in which iron was held during the time of Homer. Were a modern poet to represent his hero as holding out a large lump of iron as a prize, and were he to represent this prize as eagerly contended for by kings and princes, it would appear to us perfectly ridiculous. Hesiod informs us that the knowledge of iron was brought over from Phrygia to Greece by the Dactyli, who settled in Crete during the reign of Minos I, about 1,431 years before the commencement of the Christian era, and consequently about 60 years before the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. And it does not appear that in Homer's time, which is about 500 years later, the art of smelting iron had been so much improved as to enable men to apply it to the common purposes of life, as had long before been done by the Egyptians. The general opinion of the ancients was that the method of smelting iron ore had been brought to perfection by the Calibes, a small nation situated near the Black Sea, and that the name Calibes, occasionally used for steel, was derived from that people. Pliny informs us that ores of iron are scattered very profusely almost everywhere, 
that they exist in Elba, that there was a mountain in Cantabria composed entirely of iron ore, and that the earth in Cappadocia, when watered from a certain river, is converted into iron. He gives no account of the mode of smelting iron ores, nor does he appear to have been acquainted with the processes, for he says that iron is reduced from its ore precisely in the same way as copper is. Now we know that the processes for smelting copper and iron are quite different, and founded upon different principles. He says that in his time many different kinds of iron existed, and that they were stricturae, in Latin, astringenda acai. That steel was well known and in common use when Pliny wrote is obvious for many considerations, but he seems to have had no notion of what constituted the difference between iron and steel, or of the method employed to convert iron into steel. In his opinion, it depended upon the nature of the water, and consisted in heating iron red-hot and plunging it while in that state into certain waters. The waters at Bilbilis and Turiasso in Spain and at Comum in Italy possess this extraordinary virtue. The best steel in Pliny's time came from China. The next best, in point of quality, was manufactured in Parthia. It would appear that at Noricum steel was manufactured directly from the ore of iron. This process was perfectly practicable, and is said still to be practiced in certain cases. The ancients were acquainted with the method of rendering iron, or rather steel, magnetic, as appears from a passage in the 14th chapter of the 34th book of Pliny. Magnetic iron was distinguished by the name ferrum vivum. When iron is dabbed over with alumen and vinegar, it becomes like copper, according to Pliny. Cerusa, gypsum, and liquid pitch keep it from rusting. Pliny was of opinion that a method of preventing iron from rusting had been once known, but had been lost before his time. The iron chains of an old bridge over the Euphrates had not rusted in Pliny's time, but a few new links, which had been added to supply the place of some that had decayed, were become rusty. It would appear from Pliny that the ancients made the use of something very like tractors, for he says that pain in the side is relieved by holding it near the point of a dagger that has wounded a man. Water in which red-hot iron had been plunged was recommended as a cure for the dysentery, and the actual cautery with a red-hot iron, Pliny informs us, prevents hydrophobia when a person has been bitten by a mad dog. Rusts of iron and scales of iron were used by the ancients as astringent medicines. 6. Tin, also, must have been in common use in the time of Moses, for it is mentioned without any observation as one of the common metals and from the way in which it is spoken of by Isaiah and Ezekiel, it is obvious it was considered as a far inferior value to silver and gold. Now tin, though the ores of where it does occur are usually abundant, is rather a scarce metal, that is to say, there are but few spots on the face of the earth where it is known to exist. Cornwall, Spain, in the mountains of Galicia, and the mountains which separate Saxony and Bohemia, are the only countries in Europe where tin occurs abundantly. The last of these locations has not been known for five centuries. It was from Spain and from Britain that the ancients were supplied with tin, for no mines of tin exist, or have ever been known to exist, in Africa or Asia, except in the East Indies. The Phoenicians were the first nation which carried on a great trade by sea. There is evidence that at a very early period they traded with Spain and with Britain, and from these countries they drew their supplies of tin. It is doubtless the Phoenicians that supplied the Egyptians with this metal. They had imbibed strongly a spirit of monopoly, and to secure the whole trade of tin, they carefully concealed the source from which they drew that metal. Hence, doubtless, the reason why the Grecian geographers, who derived their information from Phoenicians, represented the Insulae Cassiterides, or Tin Islands, as a set of islands lying off the north coast of Spain. 
We know, in fact, the Scilly Islands in these early ages yielded tin, though doubtless the great supply was drawn from the neighboring province of Cornwall. It was probably from these islands that the Greek name for tin was derived. Cassiteros. Even Pliny informs us that in his time, tin was obtained from the Cassiterides and from Lusitania and Galicia. It occurs, he says, in grains in alluvial soil from which it is obtained by washing. It is in black grains, the metallic nature of which is only recognizable by the great weight. This is a pretty accurate description of stream tin, which we know formerly constituted the only ore of that metal wrought in Cornwall. He says that the ore occurs also along with grains of gold, that it is separated from the soil by washing it along with the grains of gold, and afterwards smelted separately. Pliny gives no particulars about the mode of reducing the ore of tin to the metallic state, nor is it at all likely that he was acquainted with the process. The Latin term for tin was pumblum album. Stanum is also used by Pliny, but it is impossible to understand the account which he gives of it. There is, he says, an ore consisting of lead united to silver. When this ore is smelted, the first metal that flows out is stanum. What flows next is silver. What remains in the furnace is galena. This being smelted yields lead. Were we to admit the existence of an ore composed of lead and silver, it is obvious that no such products could be attained simply by smelting it. Cassiteros, or tin, is mentioned by Homer, and from the way in which the metal is said by him to have been used, it is obvious that in his time it bore a much higher price, and consequently was more valued than at present. In his description of the breastplate of Agamemnon, he said that it contained ten bands of steel, twelve of gold, and twenty of tin. And in the twenty-third book of the Iliad, line 561, Achilles describes a copper breastplate surrounded with shining tin. Pliny informs us that in his time, tin was adulterated by adding to it one-third of white copper. A pound of tin, when Pliny lived, cost ten denarii. Now, if we reckon a denarius at seven and three-quarters penny, with Dr. Arbuthnot, this would make a Roman pound of tin to cost six shillings, five and a half pennies. But, as the Roman pound was only equal to three-fourths of our Averdupois pound, it is plain in the time of Pliny, an Averdupois pound of tin was worth eight shillings, seven and a quarter pence, which is almost seven times the price of tin in the present day. End of section seven. Recording by April Walters.